Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I want to tell you a story about something that happened about 150-odd years ago. It was in the middle of the 19th century. The kingdom of Hawaii, this is before statehood, was inflicted with a, a frightening, rapidly expanding disease. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have a, word, a name for it officially, so it was just commonly called leprosy. Um, and like you might imagine, that people that succumbed to this illness would, would break out in blisters and sores. They would lose feeling in their limbs and eventually uh, lose the limbs. It was devastating. Thousands of people died. In a moment of desperation, the king of Hawaii ordered that anyone that showed any symptoms of the disease be moved to a quarantine island, um, an island um, called uh, Molokai, so far away that a barge only came to resupply it once a year. Women, men, children, mothers, um, the elderly, it didn't matter. If you showed any symptoms, you were moved instantly away. Women that had children while they were on the island, the children were taken away. Um, and tried, it was a, a move, a desperate move to try and protect the people from this illness that they didn't know anything about. The hope had been that once the people settled there, that they could found a sort of new community, that if you brought all of these people together, they would keep the rest of the population safe, and yet they would be able to build a community together. That, that of course, didn't happen. That's, that's not how people work. That's not how societies work. Um, the island became a place of desperation. People gave themselves over to vice and to, um, to despair. There was no medical care provided. The, the supplies did not reach the island at the rate that it was needed. Things were desperate. After seven years, the community was in a state of chaos. And yet, on the other side of the world, the Lord was working in the heart of a young man, a man named Damien de Voister. Damien, a Belgian by birth, had with his brother joined a missionary society at a young age, anxious to go around the world to tell people about the gospel. And when a bishop came to um, Belgium and, and said that they needed people to volunteer to move to this island, remember this island where what, what they assumed at the time was a highly contagious disease, they needed people to volunteer to go live out basically the rest of their lives there. Damien's brother jumped at the chance and volunteered. He said, I'll go. He was ready to embark, but at the last minute, an illness overtook him, and he wasn't able to travel. And so Damien said, I'll go, and he took his place. Now, on the island, um, when you succumb to the illness, one of the, one of the tragedies of it was that they didn't, things were in such disarray that people would just be placed in, in unmarked graves, right? There wasn't, there wasn't any organization around what to do with the dead, how to, how to honor them. When Damien arrived, one of the first things he began to do was to dig graves and to build caskets. He built a church and he rebuilt houses. He appointed leaders in the community. One of uh, the people that was there at the time, later they said it was like when he came, like we all had a father. Damien loved and cared for the people. For seven years, he served and ministered to them. And after about seven years, in 1884, while he was preparing a bath, he slipped and he put his foot into scalding water. Damien said that he looked down and realized that he hadn't felt it. The skin began to blister, and he realized at that moment that he had contracted the disease. He wrote to his brother at one point, I have become a leper for the sake of the lepers. He was given the opportunity to leave the island for medical treatment. He refused. He continued to serve the people there until his death in 1889. 
and, and now we remember uh, Damien as Saint Damien of Malachi, a saint of charity, one of many saints in the church's history that, that exemplify the love that Christ calls us to. What kind of motivation could drive such behavior? What could compel such sacrificial love and hope in the face of so much overwhelming suffering? We have in the gospel lesson today a command that Damien exemplified in his life. Indeed, it's a command which is at the very core of the gospel message. And I suspect most of you are familiar with it, this command to love one another. Oddly enough, even though we're reading this passage today, we actually have a holiday centered on this command. It's uh, during Holy Week, we gather on Thursday, we remember the institution of the Lord's Supper, and we remember this command. And the word command in Latin is mandatum, and that's where we get mandi from, mandi Thursday. The, the, the mandi is referring to this command. Um, and I'm sure there's something in the lectionary about, you know, living in the now and not yet, and that's why the verse comes up five weeks later. But um, for one reason or another, we're, gonna, we're looking at it today. So today we get to do a sort of Monday Thursday part two, if you will, which is great because on Monday Thursday we sat in, if you remember, we sat in the darkness of the world and we prepared ourselves for the crucifixion. Today we, we sit in the light of the resurrection and try to understand the world from the light of Christ. So today I want to ask a few questions about our text, looking at 1 John 13 verses 31 to 35. First, I want to ask, how does this command relate to what has just transpired at the table? How are these all put together? Nothing, the Bible is not an ingredient list or a a shopping list, right? Everything in the Bible is related to the things that are connected to it. If, If the gospel writer puts one story right next to another, you should interpret them in light of each other. So how does the command relate to what's just happened at the table? And related to that, what is the glory of our Lord that he's talking about there. And once we've gotten that figured out, then how can we understand the command to love in light of the glory of God? Why does Jesus put those things together? What is it about glory that compels Jesus to command his disciples love one another? So question one, what is going on at the table? Our lesson today begins in a rather abrupt way. The text says, if you have in your bulletin, it says, when he had, gotten out, when he had gone out, and the question you might be asking yourself then is when who had gone out? If, if you were listening when uh, Deacon Joe read the gospel in our gospel book, if there's an unidentified pronoun at the beginning, sometimes the gospel book will go ahead and put the name in there. So if you're paying attention, you know the answer. Judas, right, there we go. Judas had just gone out. But if we think about the question, it actually becomes a little more interesting than that. You see, John has also introduced a new character. There are 14 persons in the room. 14 persons that are mentioned in that section as being with our, um, being in the room there on our Lord's last night. There's the 12 apostles. There's our Lord. It's 13. There's one other presence, though. John says in verse 2 of chapter 13, the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. The devil. Now, it's interesting because John, up to that point, hasn't talked about the devil. Mark and, or, and Matthew and Luke, they all talk about Satan or the devil early on. Mark, Matthew and Luke included as part of the temptations of Jesus, that the devil tempts Jesus, right? But, but John, and, and a way to think about it is that John is writing later, and so he's very choosy about the stories that he includes. He knows that the sort of the, the general framework is there, and now he wants to highlight a specific thing, and so he waits, and he doesn't mention the devil. 
He waits till he gets to this moment. Until they're gathered for the Passover meal, until everything is set for this climactic moment, right? And then the devil comes onto the stage. And there's a sort of double vision because Judas now represents two different characters. There's Judas the man, and there's the devil standing behind him. You could even, if you wanted, imagine it like a play. There in the center stage of the table with our Lord in the middle, the beloved disciple privy to this apparently private conversation is on his left. And there is Judas sitting at Jesus's right hand and behind him stands the enemy. The serpent from the garden, the specter that has sought from the beginning to betray God, to corrupt his works. But notice after setting up this presence in verse two, John immediately goes back to describing what Christ does for the disciples. Notice the love that Jesus shows to Judas on this night. He sits him in the place of honor. He washes his feet. He gives him, as it were, every opportunity to turn back, to repent, to accept the love of God. But Judas is resolved at this point. Remember, it was Judas that sought out the Pharisees. It was Judas that set the price for his betrayal, and he took the money. So when Jesus says, just loud enough for the beloved disciple and Judas to overhear, this bread is for the one who will betray me, Judas doesn't hesitate. And John, who watched it happen, says, Satan entered into him at that moment. So who leaves the table? On the one hand, it's Judas, but on the other hand, it's also Satan. It's the devil that leaves the table. The enemy of God is making his move at last. That's what John has been building to at this moment, is here's the moment of confrontation. The archetypical struggle between good and evil, between darkness and light. But John, having intentionally set the stage in this way, then does something unexpected. Think, look at Jesus' response, right? So after he leaves the table... Jesus doesn't respond with a rallying cry. It's not, it's not like something out of Henry V or Independence Day where it says, you know, we've, if we all band together, if we, if we work really hard, we might make it. We now have this insurmountable evil and we're going to attack it. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He ignores the devil completely. He prepares his disciples for what is about to happen by framing all of it as according not to the devil, but as according to God's will according to God's purposes. Now is the moment where God is glorified. You see, from the beginning, the lie of the devil has been that he could somehow rival God, that somehow he was a player in the game, that the light could possibly in some way be threatened by darkness. And this is still his lie today, right? That whatever the devil has done or is doing in your life, that whatever scars or whatever threats he holds against you, that somehow he whispers in the night, I, I can push God away. That God somehow looks at what's in your life and says, I don't know if I can save that. I don't know if I can redeem that. And what Christ makes clear in this moment, when he's looking at the devil playing his card, making his biggest move, having set everything up for the betrayal of God, Jesus looks at that and says, that's a lie. Christ says to the devil, you can't play with me. I own the board. I own the pieces. I wrote the rules. Think of the beginning of John's gospel, right? The claim that's central to John starts at the very beginning. He says, everything that was made was made by God through Christ, and nothing exists that wasn't made by Christ. God owns the board. The devil doesn't get to play. The devil doesn't rival God. 
God is in control from the beginning to the end. Brothers and sisters, hear, hear this clearly. Whatever death is in your life, whatever sin, whatever pain, whatever has been done to you and whatever you have chosen and fallen into, none of it is a threat to the Almighty God. There's not a thing in your life that God looks at and wonders if he can redeem. How often do we fall into the trap of thinking that? How often do we become overwhelmed by our own guilt, by our own awareness of our fallenness? I, I had a mentor in college. I remember one time him saying to me, you know, you're, you're so young, you still think of your sin in individual terms. You still think, if I could just get over this or that, this addiction, this, this tendency, this anger, if I could handle this, then I'd be good. He said, don't, don't you realize it goes all the way down? Don't you realize that Christ's love is already there, already at the bottom, that Christ knows you and loves you? Tim Keller, a theologian and pastor in New York, he said, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. So Christ gives the devil his moment. He allows the devil to carry out the ultimate expression of his evil intentions, his darkest dreams. Christ allows himself to be nailed to a cross so that he can show that even at the height of its power, evil can do nothing to the glory of God. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What is the glory of God? It's his vindication. It's the showing forth that God alone is God. The revelation that the devil is a liar and that all of his claims to power are nothing but a pretense. I don't know what evil in your life tempts you to fear and shame, but I know this, that God is not daunted by any of it, that the Lord loves you and has redeemed you, that the waters of baptism are complete, and that the Lord has claimed you wholly as his own. And having claimed you, he unites you into the people of God, and he gives you a new command. And it's this command that I, I want to spend the last part of our time together today. We had that question at the beginning, what does the command to love have to do with the glory of God? Why does Christ talk about his glory and immediately go into this command? I think to understand that, we need to go back to the fall, back to the initial story in Genesis of Adam and Eve in the garden, the initial move by the devil to corrupt the work of God. You see, sin has always been about vocation. Vocation being the thing that you're called to do, right? What were Adam and Eve called to do? The, the original temptation had to do with that. Adam and Eve were called to reflect God, to be the representatives of God in the world. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the pattern of creation in Genesis, what you find is it's describing the building of a temple. And right at the center of the temple, wherein, if you look at pagan texts, they would have said, all right, and here's where we put the idol in. Here's where we put the image of our God. Right at the, in, at the middle there, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And the reason is because Adam and Eve were called to reflect the glory of God into the world. They were called to bring the whole world under the garden of Eden. But the devil comes and he says, maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe you could rival God. And so he comes and he, he challenges them not just to be a reflection, but to be God themselves. And so what's happening then is God is redeeming that. 
If the devil is saying, I'm putting you in this position where you can rival God, right? So Christ does two things. One is he challenges, he shows the devil that he doesn't represent a challenge to him. And then he restores Adam and Eve back to that vocation of reflecting God's glory, back to that image of who God is. And what is God? God is love, right? God is the fulfillment of the very essence of love. The idea of love that we have, we have because it exists in God. Think of the revelation of Scripture that God exists internally as a community of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who love one another. Humanity then is created to exist in that kind of relationship, that kind of community with one another. So the devil comes and tries to subvert that. And what happened? what's the immediate effect of the sin, right? So they're in the garden, they eat of the fruit, and the immediate consequence of the sin is that they realize that they're naked. What, what is the, why does the text care? Why does the story care about nakedness? What's going on? It's not about clothing. Nakedness is about vulnerability. They realize that they're a threat to one another. And what's, what's interesting is God doesn't challenge this. When he sends them out of the garden, he gives them clothes. And the reason he gives them clothes is because if they're not following God, if they're not partaking in that love, they really are a threat to one another. And so the whole of Scripture then is about God restoring humanity to that relationship, right? That's symbolized in the clothing, but really is about the love that they have for one another. And so when Christ is reconstituting his community, when he's at this Last Supper with his disciples, what he's doing is he's giving them back the ability to love one another. He's giving them back the law of God, that reflective purpose, We are called to love not just as we love ourselves, but more than ourselves, right? So when, when we saw in the law in Leviticus, Christ says, love your neighbor as your, or God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Christ says, I give you a new command. The reference for love ceases to be just one another and it becomes God himself. And again, there's that reflective pattern of base your love for one another on what I have done for you. Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And that, that teaching, I think, is a hard teaching. It strikes against the very core of our claims to independence and self-determination, values which have been with us since the beginning. Usually when we talk about love, we mean up to a point. We, it would have made more sense to us if the Lord had said, love one another as long as it's good for you. Love one another in a manageable sort of way. Love in such a way that allows you to live authentically. But that's exactly what he doesn't command. The command the Lord has given us is to love in a sacrificial way, to love to the very end of ourselves. St. Thomas Aquinas defined love this way. He said, to love is to, is to desire the good, capital G, the good, for the other person, to want what is right and true for them. This doesn't necessarily mean comfort for either the lover or the person being loved. It does mean engagement. It means investment in the people around you. Christ compels us to seek one another's good, even to our own detriment. Why? Because in this way, we image God. The devil sought to rival God. Adam and Eve sought to make themselves like God. In Christ, those challenges are brought to an end. God is shown to be without rival, and he creates for himself a people who are indeed like him, who are made like him, not according to power, but according to self-giving love. I want to conclude with a story that comes to us from uh, St. Jerome, one of the early church fathers. 
And it's a story that had been passed down to him about John. John, the, the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel, later in life was, um, went to Ephesus and watched over the church, the church there as a bishop. And John, you know, the, as, um, the tradition that's handed down to us is John alone of the apostles isn't martyred. And so he lives to a, to a very old age. And they said that in the services, week after week, he became so frail in his old age that the deacons would carry him into the service on a litter. And they would come to the, to the place of the, of the sermon or of the homily, and they said that every week, John would give the same sermon, the same central message. As a frail man, he would say the same five words, little children love one another. Little children love love one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.